0: Good morning. It's a joy and a privilege for me to be opening up God's Word with you this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to the small letter of Jude. Well, it was April 26, 26, 1986, near the city of Pripyat in the northern part of the Soviet Ukraine, where what started as a safety test at the number four nuclear reactor quickly became a nuclear disaster. Many of you, I'm sure, uh, are familiar with what happened at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant where they were running a safety test which was designed to simulate a power outage. They They were trying to put together safety procedures so that they could maintain cool water circulation in their reactors and everything very quickly went terribly wrong. Instead, a large amount of energy was suddenly released, rupturing the reactor core in a steam explosion, which was quickly followed by a massive reactor core fire, releasing airborne radioactive contamination all across the USSR and Western Europe causing over 100,000 people to be evacuated from their homes. The estimates vary on the number of casualties, ranging from 4,000 in the most exposed areas of the Ukraine and Belarus and Russia to 16,000 across the continent of Europe. And as the news became clearer and the spotlight was shed on what happened that day, there were many warning signs that took place. Many knew the potential threat that lay ahead by testing this nuclear reactor in its unstable operating conditions. And yet again, as this story unfolds, we read that supervisors here and operators there failed to follow the proper safety procedures that were in place, not only to protect themselves, but to protect many others. And the result was absolute devastation, what is considered to be the worst nuclear power plant accident in history, both in terms of its cost and its casualties. You see, the deadly radioactive exposure spread far and fast, such that, as I said, thousands upon thousands of lives were affected, and there was no antidote. Once that radiation spread, there was nothing that could be done to counteract its deadly exposure. Uh, We find ourselves this morning nearing the end of the book of Jude, where Jude has laid out the warning signs for us. He has spent up until this point in the book, almost all of this book, giving us the warning signs of what would happen if we were exposed to and accepted false teaching, the spiritual devastation that could be caused. You see, but unlike the disaster in Chernobyl where the warnings were given the dangers were understood, and the threats were acknowledged but ignored, we have the opportunity now to heed Jude's warning, to follow the divine safety procedures that are in place for us, to protect us, but also to protect the gospel. You see, in this text this morning, Jude gives us the antidote to prevent the poisonous influence and effect of false teaching in our lives, which is this which is this. We need to fight to grow the fruits of faith. We need to fight to grow the fruits of faith. Let's read verses 17 to 19 together in our text this morning. It says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these people who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And so the first way this morning that we are gonna fight to grow the fruits of the faith is by this, anticipating attacks on the faith. We need to anticipate attacks on the faith. You see, when we get to our text this morning, beginning in verse 17, there's a major transition that's taking place in this book. And if I can give you kind of a 30,000-foot overview of the book of Jude, in verse 3 is kind of really the main idea as we've studied. Jude calls us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And in verse 4, he says, who we ought to contend against. These people who have crept into the church. He's given us this description of, of what he calls these ungodly people. They've crept into the church, and Pastor Ian over the last few weeks has very clearly and helpfully explained that uh, Jude explains the, the, that we can know the root of these people's life by the fruit of their life, right? That principle, you reap what you sow. And so Jude hasn't really given us, per se, a list of teaching that is correct and teaching that is false, that these people are following. But instead he's saying, look at their lifestyle. These people are about their own glory. They're about justifying all kinds of behavior that actually demonstrate that they reject the authority of God. Verse 12 says that these are shepherds who are gorging, they're feeding themselves, and consequently their judgment is sure, verse 15 and 16 make clear. And so Jude now has ended his argument denouncing those who oppose the faith. And he's turning back to the faithful, back to what the original verses of this book called the called, the beloved, the kept that he began writing to, like I said in verse three. And instead he says, you must, my dear friends, you must. And so get that, we're turning from description, these are these people, to prescription, We're turning from them and from their church to you and to I and to our church. And notice as well, just preliminarily, the shift in language. Jude's given a very clear condemnation to these people, right? This book has kind of been characterized historically as having a little bit of a negative message, right? It's a message of warning, a message of urgency, a message of judgment to these people. And now he writes and he says, but you must remember my beloved In other words, my dear friends, right? There's a warming up, there's a friendliness, there's a tone of pastoral encouragement in his voice now. And so we've been told we need to contend for the faith, and we've been told why we need to contend for the faith, but we've been left wondering, how do we contend for the faith? Like, How does this actually look in our life? Jude, what kind of things ought we to be doing? What ought our life to look like if we're gonna be a people who are fighting for the faith, and very simply, his message is this. The first step is to anticipate these attacks on the faith, to remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude's saying here, don't be surprised by what I'm telling you, because I fall in a long line of individuals who have predicted that what's happening right now was actually going to happen. Right? Jesus said himself, In Matthew 7, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Also, Jesus, in Matthew 24, verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. See, there is nothing new here, friends. This is exactly what Jesus predicted would take place And there are many other passages across the New Testament. Paul gives very many similar warnings in his own letters. Or the Apostle John in 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so repeatedly, Christ and the Apostles were telling Thus, that opposition would enter into the church and oppose the faith. Now, in one sense, this ought to be encouraging towards us, right? We can take God at his word. He said that this would happen, and so we shouldn't be surprised. And while Jesus and others gave this message, Jude actually quotes here from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 18. He says, They said to you, and that is the apostles, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly Passions. We don't know exactly how these believers heard from these apostles. Presumably, one or some of the apostles uh, had come to their community to share the apostles' teaching as foundational for their community. And part of that teaching was the reality of this fact that there are going to be opponents of the faith. Uh, in the last time, uh, this a phrase that is commonly used in, a, in the New Testament to distinguish between the period of Christ's first coming and his second coming. And Jude is writing, believing that that last time was even upon them at that time. And so how much more are we finding ourselves now in that last time? And Jude calls these people scoffers, uh, mockers. This word gives the sense of someone who's standing at a distance and despising something in other places in the bible like psalms 17 or 79 verse 10 or second peter even these mockers are associated with questions that are kind of like oh where is your god Hey, where is he after all? You know, where, where, where is the promise of his coming? In, in 2 Peter, they believe that because Christ hadn't already returned, that he wasn't going to return in the future. And so there's this sense of mocking, as we've seen already. Uh, in our book, these mockers believe that God will not judge, either at all, or he won't judge them specifically. And so they feel free to indulge in this ungodly behavior as if there's no difference to them, ungodly passions, and as we said, their behavior betrays who they truly are. As we keep looking further, Jude continues to kind of sum up the effects of these people on the church. He says, it is these people who cause division. Now, we need to pay attention to how subtle this can be in the life of our church, right? No one's going out there uh, declaring, we're going to deny the Lord, right? We're going to cause destruction and division. Come, come follow after us, Right? It's a lot more subtle than that. It's small things like like gossip and like disagreements or factions. It begins as us versus them. And that message is more like: hey, have you ever heard this? You see, we have the true insight. We have the true understanding. Jude, his group over there, no, not so much. You you should listen to us because we really know what we're talking about. It's so much more subtle. See, in reality, these people are worldly. That is, they are unspiritual. They are following and saying yes to every natural instinct and devoid of the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit through Jude is calling us to fight in our lives to grow the fruit of faith. And first we do that by recognizing the reality of false teaching, the fruit of false teaching, that we don't want to underestimate its subtleties, but we need to anticipate that there will be tax upon the faith. We need not to be surprised, but we need to be prepared. Now, brothers and sisters in the Lord, if I can be honest for a moment and just kind of give a general Christian, you know, in-house assessment, I fear that we can respond to these kind of situations very wrongly. Honestly, it's kind of like dogs. Just get where I'm going here. Uh, You've been there before, right? You're walking up to your friend's house. They've just invited you over for dinner and you're carrying your meal in your hand and you ring that doorbell and all of a sudden this yappy, barking dog runs to the door, absolutely losing it on you, right? This dog thinks that everyone is the enemy. And so their immediate reaction is to just start barking your ear off, attacking whatever moves in any direction that it doesn't like. You know, but there's another kind of dog as well, the opposite, the sleepy dog, the dog that was bought to guard and to protect the home. And yet this dog just doesn't really have a care in the world, right? This dog... Um, definitely not protecting anybody at all. In fact, any enemy could come into that home at all, and this dog just wouldn't care. It wouldn't even bat an eye. But there's also the ignorant dog. This is just the dog that's just happy to be fed, you know, not that discerning at all. It doesn't matter whose hand the food is coming from, whether from an enemy or from a loved one. It's just really happy to have somebody around. But listen, there's also the trained dog. Okay? The trained dog, the dog that has been trained up to detect when something is wrong. It knows the difference between truth and error. It knows to sniff out the problem and to deal with it appropriately. And yet it also knows to leave everything else alone because it knows what the true problem is and what it isn't. And so if I can put it this way this morning as a, a way to apply this text without offending anybody, what kind of dog are you? What kind of dog are you? Where do you find yourself? Are you barking at everyone that you disagree with on every small issue like they're the enemy? Or the opposite? Are you lazy and careless like this doesn't really matter when, as we've said, Jude, Jesus, the apostles, and and everybody else seems to think that this really does matter? Are you ignorant and undiscerning Or are you trained and prepared to deal with true problems in an appropriate way? You see, this is what Jude calls us to. That we are to be a people that anticipate that real, dangerous, and sometimes spiritually fatal attacks will come in subtle ways and overt ways into our lives and into our church. But we need to be prepared. We need to be trained to deal up with them. And so how do we get trained up, right? How do we get prepared? In the same way that that training dog needed to be trained, to cultivate those skills necessary to accomplish its purpose, we need to do the same. And we do that by, secondly, cultivating the habits of the faith. We need to cultivate the habits of the faith. Look in your Bible with me to verse 20 to 23. Continues, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by flesh now really this is the bulk of our passage this morning judas showing us that contending for the faith isn't primarily a negative thing that is to say that it's not mostly defined by what we refrain from doing But actually contending for the faith is constructive and positive. And so he's showing us here what we need to be doing positively. Notice again in verse 20 at the the beginning, he says the word but. Okay, this is a word that's contrasting things. And so Jude is contrasting, we understand, the characteristics of those he's denounced with who his actual readers are. Look in verse 19, he says, they are destructive or divisive. But you, in verse 20, are to be building one another up. They are worldly people, part of this world system, but you are to be holy as your faith is holy. They are actually devoid of the Spirit, but you, you are to be praying in the Spirit. And so we see this contrast, which helps us kind of give shape to how our lives ought to look different from those who oppose the faith. But it's interesting, in verses 20 and 21, Jude gives one imperative, okay, one action, one command, In other words, the core of this section is this one thing. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You want to know how to contend for the faith? This is the main idea, okay? Keep yourselves in the love of God. But he doesn't just leave us to figure out how we ought to do that on our own. No, instead that command is surrounded by ways that we do that, by building ourselves up by praying in the Holy Spirit, by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's tackle each one of these. First, we need to be cultivating the habits of the faith by one, as you see on the screen behind me, building intentionally, building intentionally. Jude says we need to be building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Now, this idea of building up is all over the New Testament as a metaphor for spiritual growth and development. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.10, in relation to his apostolic work, he's coming to Corinth and he's taught the word of God. That he, it says, like a master skilled builder, laid a foundation And someone else, he's referring to Apollos, is now building upon it. And so that is, others have now come and by teaching and communicating the word of God are causing growth to happen in the lives of the believers there. Another verse, Acts 20, verse 32, Paul writes, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up And to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Colossians 2, verse 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so you and I have been given the responsibility by God to be contending for the faith by contending for our own growth. We're not to be content with our current degree of sanctification, but to always be growing. Right? Not one of us has made it, and nor should we think that we have. We need to be building ourselves up, and the way in which that happens is through the Word of God. I love what J.C. Ryle says in his book, Warning to the Churches. This is written in the 19th century, by the way. J.C. Ryle was a pastor, and he's writing to his church about guarding against false teaching. But how relevant is this for us today? You can follow along behind me. He says, does anyone ask me, what is the safeguard against false doctrine? I answer in one word, the Bible. The Bible, regularly read, regularly prayed over, regularly studied. We must go back to the old prescription of our master. Search the scriptures. If we want a weapon to wield against the devices of Satan, there is nothing like the sword of the spirit, the word of God. But... To wield it successfully, we must read it habitually, diligently, intelligently, and prayerfully. He goes on to say, This is a point on which I fear many fail. In an age of hurry and bustle, few read their Bibles as much as they should. More books perhaps are read than ever, but less of the one book which makes man wise unto salvation. Wow. What a powerful quote that is for us today. The word of God is the means by which we are built up. There is no other way. Now this can take many different forms, but just as an example, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but are you regularly showing up for the preaching of God's word, to hear the preaching of God's word? Are you meditating upon the word? Are you memorizing the word? Are you reading the word? Are you studying the word by yourself or maybe with other people? See, there are many different ways in which God's word can cause us to grow. And I would argue that just as much as we ought to be intentional about our own building up, an important thing for us to consider in this text, that word yourselves, is actually in the plural here. And so, in other words, as we're being built up personally, we actually have an equal responsibility to the body of Christ to be intentionally building one another up. Catch that. This is not Lone Ranger Christianity. This is not just the pastor's job. Jude is writing not to pastors, he's writing to a gathering of Christians calling them to be engaged in each other's growth. This is biblical Christianity where the church of God has an eye for one another's growth. We have concern and love to see a fellow brother and sister being built up in the Lord and we're actually engaging in that responsibility for their growth in their lives. We together as the church are God's temple. So I wonder, what does this look like in your life today? As you find yourself here, what attitude are you bringing to your own spiritual growth? You know, are you eager? Are you hungry for it? Maybe you've been in the faith for a long time. Are you still contending to grow in your understanding of God and His Word? Are you prioritizing the Word in your life, like J.C. Ryle said, over all these other books that you might be reading And listen, I know that some of you are. And for that, let me encourage you to press on still more, to continue to do that, to keep at it, keep pursuing the Lord. But maybe that's not you today. Maybe you found yourself in a place where the word of God is on the back burner. Maybe you're apathetic and indifferent. And let me just ask you straight up, would you be willing today to make changes in your life for your own good, Okay, but also for the good of your spouse, for the good of your kids, for the good of your grandkids, for the good of the church. Maybe other priorities in your life have usurped what should be this true priority. Maybe summer living has replaced spiritual thriving. Listen, I get it. There are seasons in life for sure where this happens, but don't miss here how God has designed for you to grow by the word of God, but also for others to benefit from your own Growth. And the amazing thing today is that guess what? Guess what? You can make a change today. Grace is available to you today. Forgiveness is available to you today. Repent of your apathy, repent of your indifference, and begin today to be intentionally building yourselves up in the Word of God. If you're in a chair this morning and you would consider yourself a follower of Christ, then this message is for you. And I pray, I pray that you're compelled by the Word of God by the Spirit of God, not only to believe that you need to contend for the faith by contending for your growth, to hedge yourself against the reality of false teaching, but that you, in fact, need to look even beyond yourself, okay, to other members of our church, and to lean into their growth as well. More on that later in this message. The second habit we need to cultivate is this. We need to be praying fervently, praying fervently, contrasted with those who are devoid of the Spirit, that don't even have the Spirit of God. We are to be a people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God and praying in the Spirit. We're to be committed to prayer and not just praying about ourselves but for our, or for our own selves or for our own desires. But based upon what we read in the Word of God, we pray in accordance with the Spirit's will, with the Father's will, in keeping with Jesus' name. All of these ideas, I believe, are what Jude is getting at here. Again, we see that contextually. These opponents of the faith are against God's will. They're clearly against God's authority. Their lifestyle demonstrates their own rebellion. And in contrast to that, Jude is calling us to pray, which is to what? To demonstrate our submission to God. To demonstrate our submission to his authority, to seek his wisdom, to seek his ways, to be dependent upon him in prayer. We're called to be a praying people. And so again, what does your prayer life look like? Do you pray fervently? You know, as I've been studying this week, this kind of has been the one area, just honestly, that the Lord has been really convicted me of, that I'm, I'm not where I, I need to be in my prayer life. It's so easy for me, and maybe for you as well, just to offer God these, these quick, uh, conveniently rushed, you know, heartless, kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants style prayers. Um, you know, the grocery list, where there's just all these needs that you have, and there's no acknowledgement of God's character, or no thankfulness. And, and that is exactly uh, the opposite of what Jude is calling for here. Uh, He's calling for me and you to contend for our growth in our prayers. Like, these are wartime prayers. These are prayers of real dependence, of real reliance upon God, prayers of urgency. Do you know this morning what a friend you have in Jesus? All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I know this comes so naturally to many of you as well, and we praise God for that. But all of us, I think, we need to be evaluating what is it that we're looking and not looking to God for in prayer. Again, not just praying for our own, by ourselves, in our own closets, but we need to respect the corporate nature of this text. Scripture is very clear. We must gather together as Christians to pray. Now, again, that form can take on many different shapes. But if you have not made gathering with other Christians to pray for the church a priority... Let me encourage you to do that. We have an outlet, it's called Prayer and Praise Night. And it's an amazing evening where we get to gather together as God's people to do just this. And we do just this because God commands us to and it's for our good. If the gospel is gonna go forth and the work of the church is gonna prosper, then as one author says, we need to pray it to prosperity by the grace of God. We need to contend for the faith by growing the habit of prayer in our life. Thirdly, we need to obey faithfully. We need to be obeying faithfully. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is the main idea of this text. And Jude's greatest concern is that we contend for the faith by you know, developing these habits of the faith because he knows that by us developing these habits, we'll protect ourselves against the subtleties, lies, and the opposition to the faith. And therefore, we ought to keep ourselves in the love of God. And I believe the idea here actually is to stay kind of within the realm of God's blessing. Is that your responsibility? Yes. Yes, it is. That's what the text is telling us. This is a command. Jesus says that we keep ourselves in the love of God when we obey his commandments. John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. And so our lives should not be marked by rebellion or hostility or skepticism towards God, but rather by obedience and trust. Again, the corporate implications of this are essential for us to understand, right? Our lives ought to be so entwined in a way that we can actually see the habits and the patterns of of fruitfulness and obedience in each other's lives. Like, how can I affirm and encourage your walk in Christ if I don't know anything about it? How can I press in and exhort you to grow in obedience in a particular area of your life if we spend no time together? And the answer to that is obvious, right? We can't. We can't do those things. And so part of this is that we just need to develop uh, relationships where transparency and honesty are really valued. But perhaps maybe even in your own life, there's a particular area of sin that you know you're not living in obedience towards God. And let me just talk to you about that. Maybe nobody else even knows about it. Maybe that takes the form of uh, a deep-seated anger in your heart towards God uh, because of a situation, or maybe it's towards a family member, or maybe it's towards somebody in your workplace. Uh, Maybe there's a materialism or a covetousness that is there in your heart because of what others have or get to do that you don't have or get to do. Maybe there's an anxiety or a worry that you've given into Maybe there's a sexual sin in your life that you've allowed to develop and to grow by believing that it's actually not that bad compared to what others are doing. Can I just exhort you to obey Jesus? Do what Jesus says to do, which is this. Deal with your sin today in an aggressive and a serious way for this reason. It's better for that to happen than, as Jesus says, for your whole body to go into hell. And you might say, look at me, Mark, aren't you being a little bit extreme? Aren't you being a little extreme? And to that I say, aren't you being just a little bit arrogant? Like, aren't you being a little arrogant by presuming upon God's grace by holding this sin in your life? Aren't you overestimating your spiritual condition like it's normal for a Christian to hold on to sin in their life? Aren't you underestimating the deceitfulness of sin? Hebrews 3, verse 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You don't know how the root of that sin can grow in your life. You don't know the ultimate effects of unbelief and rebellion that that could produce in your life. And so keep yourselves in the love of God. Live a life that is marked by obedience and trust in his word, by repentance and by faith. And lastly, we contend for the faith by waiting expectantly. Waiting expectantly. Verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And the idea here is to welcome this, to wait for it with great expectancy. We contend for the faith when we choose to live in light of eternity, knowing ultimately that even as we've sung about, that day will come when Christ will return, when the true church will be vindicated, and when all who trust in him will experience his final Mercy, you know, as we remember from day to day that this world is not our home, we turn our eyes away from worldliness and from the temporal things that even still might be good things but are still temporal things towards the eternal. This is what it means to wait with expectancy. It's been said the Christian life is lived with three kinds of looks. An inward look, which was relating to the development of our own character. Uh, An upward look, relating to our communion with God, but also a forward look, awaiting the consummation of that day of his return. And this is our ultimate hope as we eagerly await our Savior's return. Now get this, when this is who you are, when this is what you are cultivating in your life, here is what you are able and called by God to do. Verse 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. If you are stagnant and weak or immature in the faith, you are very, very, very susceptible to false teaching. But guess what? If you're strong, if you are growing, then you are able to assist and to serve others. You become a conduit of God's mercy towards other people. This becomes your role, to shepherd other people who are doubting, to be merciful towards those who are confused and to lead them back to the truth. Now, notice in this text, the, the one who's honestly doubting requires a different conversation than the one who's stubbornly refusing, okay? We need to be wise about this, but it is true that we need to be more aggressive in our rescue of those who are beyond confused and who are actually living in the fire, so to speak, we need to be the instrument that God uses to save these individuals who are committed and convinced of this false teaching, right? We, this is what we want. I mean, this is the mission of the church, right? We wanna see people who are under the influence of false teaching or just lost. We don't want them to continue on in that trajectory, right? We want to love them by persuading them for God's glory to listen and to heed the truth of the gospel. This becomes our task, to recognize the dangers of sin and yet with mercy and with compassion, not run away, but actually run towards them all the while protecting ourselves, knowing the corruption of false teaching that can so easily affect us, right? We want to be winsome, We wanna be persuasive, we wanna be compelling in our communication, but we need to speak the truth of the gospel. People need to know that there is a king, and he does sit on the throne, and that both by our voluntary choices and by our nature, we stand at enmity with that king. We have chosen to rebel against him, and that is very bad news, because we are objectively guilty, and that is bad, if that is all the news that there is right? But you know this, and we praise God that this king, he sent his son, his only son, truly God and truly man, to live a perfect life, to die what we call a substitutionary death, which means this, we believe that by his death, he took the punishment of our sin, and then physically rising again from the grave in history 2,000 years ago, thereby conquering death, and he becomes the way of salvation for us, both in this life and for eternity. And we believe that Jesus, as he has said, and as we eagerly await his return in Matthew 24, that before him will be gathered all the nations and that he will separate, this is Jesus speaking, he will separate people from one another as the shepherd separ- separates, sorry, separates the sheep from the goats. Listen, this, this is our message, right? Salvation is holy by God's grace. It's freely available, to anyone who would believe, anyone who would repent of their sin and anyone who would believe in Jesus. And so if you are here today and you have not given your life to this message, if you have not given your life to Christ, let me just compel you to do that even today. Would you listen to this message? Would you heed the warning of Jesus and of Jude? Would you open your eyes to see the path of your life and the trajectory that it's leading towards, the end for which it's leading? And would you find eternal hope in the gospel? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is how we contend for the faith. We build intentionally, we pray fervently, we obey faithfully, we wait expectantly, and then we watch as God uses us to become a channel of mercy, that mercy that we've received, the others who so desperately need that same mercy. Well, the last way that we fight to grow the fruit of faith in our lives is this. Thirdly, we fixate On the source of our faith, the source of the faith. Verses 24 and 25, look down at your Bible. Jude ends this book by saying this Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory be majesty, be dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He ends this book by giving us this glorious doxology for one reason. And that is that we would realize that the goal of all of this contending the goal of all of this fighting, the goal of all this preserving, of guarding, the very reason which Jude was compelled to write in the first place, the goal of his whole book is to call us to worship the God who is truly worthy of his glory. God is worthy of his glory. He is our keeper. He is our presenter. And he is our savior. I love what one author says. Jude promises us that though humanly speaking, the path to heaven has always seemed perilous, always full of dangers from Satan and sin. But from God's perspective, the path to heaven is absolutely safe. Not because believers are able to preserve themselves, but because God is able to keep them. This is an incredible promise. God is at his post. He is standing guard over believers to ensure their safety during any assault from the enemy. He is able to keep you from stumbling into soul-destroying sin. Now, I'm sure that you notice the similarities here between verse 20, where we are called to keep ourselves in the love of God, and this promise that God is able to keep us. And so, which is it? Are we keeping ourselves Or is God keeping us? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, right? We need to uphold the responsibility that God has given us with vigilance. And at the same time, we need to uphold that the scriptures insist that God is operating for his good purposes. And we can't dilute either one of these truths in order to be biblically faithful, right? This is the biblical data. We are responsible agents. We are culpable for our own actions and attitudes. We are called, in fact, in Philippians 2, as many of you know, to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. And yet we know that it is God who is working for our good, both for his will and according to his good pleasure. We need to conform our thinking to the biblical data, and we need to uphold both of these realities in light of what this text is telling us. And so, yes, you are responsible to keep yourself in the love of God, but praise God that he is able to keep you from stumbling as well. And not only that, but to present you as blameless before his glory. He will make the fallen man stand blameless in his presence. You know, in the presence of God, Adam hid. In the presence of God, Isaiah fell to the ground. And in the presence of God, Job repented in dust and ashes In the presence of God, we will stand before him with great rejoicing, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. And so we fix our eyes on the source of our faith. We're reminded that he is our savior, that he is able to keep us and that he has promised to present us as blameless That to him belongs all glory and all majesty, all dominion and all authority for all time, now and forevermore. And we are reminded ultimately that all of this is fundamentally not about us. This is about God and about his character. This is who our God is. He is worthy of your worship. Not just on a Sunday morning either when we gather together, but throughout every day of your lives. In the public moments and in the private moments. In the words that you say, but also in the thoughts that you think, God is worthy of His glory. And so as we see Him, as we're reminded of who He is, I pray, I pray this morning even that your worship is fueled for Him, that your affections are increased for Him, and that your life will be lived for His glory. We contend for the faith, matching right doctrine with right living, because He is worthy of our glory, of His glory. And our words, together with our actions, will teach either the truth about God and bring Him great glory, or something false about God, resulting in the tarnishing of His name, but also spiritual devastation to many others. In the case of Chernobyl, what would have happened if the warning signs were heeded? I'm sure you probably haven't ever thought about that, and neither have I until this week. But what would have happened if the safety procedures were followed? What if the supervisors decided to postpone the safety test because of the unstable operating conditions and the other issues that arose? What would have happened? The answer is nothing. There would have been no explosion, there would have been no devastation, there would have been no contamination thousands upon thousands of lives would be saved. And so you see, Jude, he has shown us the warning signs. He's called us to recognize the absolute devastation that false teaching can have in our life and also in the life of our church. He's given us the divine procedures to follow so that we can contend for the faith. The question for us this morning remains, are we going to follow them? What would happen if we paid attention to this call? both individually and corporately. What would happen if we followed these divine procedures? Increased spiritual growth would happen, right? Ongoing greater discipleship in the Lord would happen. Increased spiritual health would happen. Greater worship towards God would happen. Glory given to God in all that we do would happen, and I praise God, and I believe, listen, that we are in a healthy place. We aren't perfect, that we have a long way to go. Um, but I know that you love the Word of God. I know that you love the truth of God. And I know by experience, because I get to see you every week, that you love to worship God. And so let me encourage you to press in on this, to press in on this, both corporately but individually as well. May we be faithful by God's grace to hear the Word of God and to be diligent to apply it to our lives so that God would receive all the glory that is rightly his. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God, we bow our hearts before you now, Father, because you are worthy of your glory. You are worthy of all praise and all honor. You are worthy of us contending for the faith by contending for our own growth. Lord, these fruits of the faith in our own life that we desire to grow, So, God, we pray that in this season, even as we turn a corner into the fall, would you challenge us with your word? Or would you compel us to, to press on, to lean in by your grace? We pray, God, that as you have promised, that you would keep us, that you would keep us from stumbling, that you would present us as blameless before the glory of your presence with great joy. God, we anticipate that day. Fill our hearts now. Lord, fill this place with the praise of your people. We give you all glory and all honor that is due unto you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.